Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled, Israel's Apostasy. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, verses 35 to 50, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There's a passage in Exodus 34 that's long fascinated me. You know, the context of the passage is equally fascinating. Moses has just received the Ten Commandments, and he's descending from Mount Sinai. He sees that while he was gone for those 40 days, that the people have been disobedient to the first two commands. They're worshiping another god, and they've made a graven image. They've made an idol. And Moses is enraged, and he breaks the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God. Eventually, Moses is called back on the mountain to make a second set. And on that second occasion, God's glory appears to him. And that's what we find in Exodus 34, 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So let's just stop there, even though I've not quite yet finished reading the passage. I mean, that first part's just wonderful. Israel has sinned and is not deserving of having the Lord as their God. And yet, in spite of Israel's sin, and to make the matter applicable to all of us, in spite of our sin, God remains merciful and gracious. If we will but turn from our sins, he will be a gracious and compassionate God. You know, in essence, that's the heart of the gospel. God so loved the world, a world locked in rebellion against him. Yet a God who loves the world so much that he gave his only son that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. That's the good news. Now, remember, I said that I was not yet finished reading the text from Exodus 34. I I only read the wonderful part. There's a part that fascinates me, although it's less than wonderful. You know, we've read of God's steadfast love and his willingness to forgive. And then the text adds, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Have you ever wondered about that? How is it that God visits the iniquity of the fathers onto the children? Why should the children be punished for the sins of the fathers? You know, indeed, if you go to Ezekiel 18, there the prophet's quite clear on the matter. Suppose you have a father, he says, who's a sinner and he doesn't repent. And suppose that wicked father has a righteous son. Well, the father's sin will not be charged to the son, says Ezekiel. And that's how it should be. Each man or woman shall die for his or her own sins. Well then, is the passage in Exodus right? You know, a close examination should tell us that the two passages are not in contradiction at all. See, the Exodus passage does not say that God will punish the children for the father's sins. Rather, it says that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. But what does it mean? Well, let me retell a story that I once experienced in my pastoral ministry. I was once called out to do the funeral of a young father. He just committed suicide. It was unusually sad. It left behind from what I saw a very loving wife, three gorgeous little girls. It was remarkably sad. But by all accounts, the young man simply had lost his hope in living. But no one in the family had even the slightest grasp of the gospel. You know, I began with the basics of a God who'd sent his son in the world for just such tragedies. And when the family gathered, I met the father of the young man who had taken his life. And the father had come from a Christian home, but he'd rejected the gospel. 
and consequently the son had no faith. Neither did the granddaughters. And here in his moment of despair, this young man had no savior to cry out to. And I looked at a family who was without God and without hope in the world. See, the sin of one man was felt in the next generation and the next generation after that. See, that not only happens to individuals, it happens to cultures. And as we study our passage today, Stephen, who's on trial for blaspheming God and Moses and speaking violence against the temple, is giving his defense. We've seen that Stephen has already given a defense to the charges that he speaks blasphemies against God and against Moses. He's affirmed that God is the God of glory. He's affirmed his conviction that it was God who called Abraham and that God made a covenant with Abraham and it was God who protected his holy people in times past. But then Stephen goes further. He affirms also that it was God who chose Moses and that it was Moses who has called Israel out of Egypt. See, up till now, it's a strong case. Stephen's not blaspheming either God or Moses, and one has to wonder what would have happened had Stephen simply stopped right here. Would the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, have met and said, yep, this guy's not guilty of anything? Well, perhaps not. You know, Stephen has yet to answer a third charge, the one that he's preaching against the temple and against the law. You know, perhaps if he had simply said the right words about the law and the temple, they might have let him go free. But now here's something fascinating. Stephen didn't plan to plead for his life when he got to the Sanhedrin. He was ever conscious that he was not the defendant. He was the evangelist. And with that, we find Stephen doing what Moses warned about. The sins of the father have been visited to the next generation, he said, until it has come to you. So we're starting halfway through Stephen's speech, coming to the second half, where he will make the point that it is not he who has dishonored Moses. It was Israel's leaders who dishonored Moses. So we've come to Acts 7, 35 to 39. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles given to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. You might notice that five times in this short section, Stephen says the word this. This Moses, this man, this is the Moses, or this is the one. Over and over again, he's highlighting how great Moses was and how important he was in God's program of redemption. It was this Moses who was saved by God when the Egyptians were butchering all the children of Israel. It was this Moses who saved an Israelite from a savage and cruel death and in consequence became a fugitive. It was this Moses who met God at Mount Sinai at the burning bush. It was this Moses who led Israel through the Red Sea. It was this Moses who had been chosen by God to deliver the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. The very first time Stephen says, this Moses, he says, this Moses whom they rejected. That was back in verse 35. And then the end of this little section of the speech, he says, our fathers refused to obey him. He says, they thrust him aside. You know, perhaps Stephen was thinking of Korah's rebellion. You know, Numbers 16, verse 3 says, 
they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? That was a pious way of saying, Moses, we reject your leadership. All of us and all of our opinions are just as valuable as yours. You will not be our leader. The man who received the living oracle, says Stephen, was the very one whom our fathers thrust aside. Stephen's still not done. He said that our fathers weren't as happy to go to the promised land as you folks make it out to be. It's true they didn't go back to Egypt, but in their hearts, they surely did. It was not that their hope was in the promised land. It wasn't that at all. Indeed, they wanted to go in the other direction towards Egypt. And perhaps here, Stephen was thinking about Numbers 11, 4 to 6. There it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Oh, how quickly they forgot. I mean, Egypt wasn't the promised land. Yes, says Stephen, that's the story of how they got to the promised land. Moses dragged them there. They were kicking and screaming in opposition all the way. That's who our forefathers are. Now, we know where Stephen is going to get to. The sins of the fathers are being repeated. Since the time of Moses, not much has changed. Jesus said the same in Luke 11, verse 47, where he said, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. In other words, you say the most flowery things about the prophets, but you're not like the prophets. You're like your fathers who killed the prophets. Stephen is going to follow Jesus in that line of reasoning. He's going to say the same thing, but he's going to delay it just a little while. And his words will get him killed in the same way as Jesus' words got him killed. Easter is a pivotal time in the life of a Christian. The foundation of our faith relies on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada has a two-part video series, an Easter series, available on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel, as well as backtothebible.ca. Special musical guests Brian Dirksen and Stephanie Radekop will provide inspirational music, and you'll be refreshed and strengthened in your walk with Jesus under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. You'll be reminded that Easter offers hope, forgiveness, love, and the promise of eternal life with our Savior. So remember, join us for an Easter series right here on backtothebiblecanada.ca or join us on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. As we've seen, Stephen is called upon to make a defense of himself before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. You know, he's been brought to this trial by men who are jealous of him and were trying to stop him. And so in order to do that, they settled on slander. You know, slander is always a very effective tool. It's destroyed many lives. You know, some men are adept at it and they use it as a tool to get ahead for a lifetime. The three charges, he blasphemes God, he blasphemes Moses, he blasphemes the temple. He wants to destroy it and remove us from our land. 
And Stephen does take the time to answer. As we're going to see, he's about to speak to the matter of the temple. But the key to Stephen's speech is not really a defense of himself. See, he wants to show that it is not he who should be on trial here. In fact, the charges should be leveled against the religious leadership of Israel who are like their forefathers. So let's pick up where Stephen was still speaking about Moses. So we've come to verses 39 to 43. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. You bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Stephen is now moving well beyond the incident in Exodus 32. You know, back in Exodus 20, God had given the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, and afterwards the people made a solemn commitment. They said, all the Lord has commanded us will do, and that sounded so sincere. And then, of course, Moses is called up to the mountain of God. He's gone for 40 days, and while he's gone, you know, time is given to rethink what's just happened. So Stephen was right when he connected the making of the calf idol with the desire to go back to Egypt. You know, I remember years ago being in the museum in Cairo and seeing a calf idol being on display there. It was one of the Egyptian deities, and for some reason, and I'm not sure which, but it was the calf idol that the Israelites clung to. Having been terrified by the true and living God at Mount Sinai and having been overwhelmed by his holy and righteous laws, they simply turned from him. And when Stephen says they rejoiced over the works of their hands, he's right. See, it was not the glorious God of Abraham that gave delight to the forefathers. It was rather the idolatrous gods that they made that gave them delight. And then Stephen quotes from the prophet Micah. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifice in the wilderness? Well, on the one hand, Israel would say, yeah, well, yeah, we did. But Stephen has already made the case that there was a great difference between what Israel did physically, bodily, and what was in their hearts. Eventually, Moloch was the Canaanite sun god and Raphan, although we can't be absolutely sure, but I think he was the Egyptian god Saturn. Stephen was saying that the problem with idolatry didn't end with the wilderness wanderings, it carried on. When Israel came to the promised land, idolatry was always everywhere present. That was the reason for the Babylonian exile. Constant, consistent, ever-present, determined, never-ending rebellion against the glorious God of Abraham and against Moses. But up to this point, Stephen has still not defended himself against the charge that Jesus of Nazareth had said that he would destroy the temple. So this charge now leads him next. Indeed, it's this last charge that really has gotten passionate feelings involved in Jerusalem. Again, we see the power of slander. I mean, often the slanderer doesn't need to make the case. He simply needs to put the charges out there. What would Stephen actually say about the temple? He's made the case that it was not he who's blasphemed God or Moses. Rather, it was the forefathers of the leaders in Israel that actually did that. And for anyone who paid attention to the Hebrew Bible, that was simply undeniable. 
Isaiah would say that it was only the remnant of Israel who would be saved. The majority always opposed God. But still, what about this rumor that Jesus would destroy the temple? Was not the temple the dwelling place of God? You know, an opponent of Stephen might have said, well, now, look here. We're not denying the long history of idolatry in Israel, but our hope is still in God and in his dwelling place, the temple. There we go and offer our sacrifices. There we go and pray and seek God and worship. As long as the temple stands, we will find mercy before God and God will remain with us. You know, before the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, and along with that, the destruction of the temple, the three great pillars of Jewish piety were number one, that they were living in the land God had given them. And number two, that they, although their forefathers disobeyed the law, that they now had the Pharisees to make sure that they wouldn't break the law again. And number three, the temple was the place where God dwelt on earth and it was the sign of his presence. So it is true that after the fall of Jerusalem, after AD 70, the emphasis in Judaism did change. But while Stephen was speaking, it was still the old emphasis. The temple is central. And so Stephen is now ready to address the matter of the temple. I'm reading verses 44 to 46. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Let's see if I can restate Stephen's argument in my own words. Before Moses, that is, from the time of Abraham until Moses, been about 650 years without a place of worship. That is, it would have been a matter of building altars and worshiping God wherever an altar was built. Then Moses was ordered to build a tent, and it became the center of Israel's worship. And Stephen says, Moses directed Israel to make it, and it was this tent that came into the promised land with Joshua. And the tent wasn't brought into Jerusalem until the time of David, who asked God to build a permanent dwelling place rather than a migrant tent. That would mean from about 1444 BC until 960 BC, a period of 484 years, there was no temple in the promised land. Somehow those men and women who did not follow the majority into idolatry, but remained faithful, those people still found God's presence without a temple. At times, the tent was in Shiloh. Once it was captured by the Philistines, eventually David brought it into Jerusalem, but the faithful saw God's presence without a temple. And that leads to the next stage of Stephen's argument, and now that's 47 to 50. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That's a quotation from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. This was God himself speaking to Israel. I don't dwell in houses made by human hands. Heaven is my throne room. The entire earth, all of it, is my footstool. Do you think my place of rest is confined to one building on the earth? Here's what's really fascinating. Solomon himself, the builder of that temple, made that argument. 1 Kings 8 records his prayer of dedication for the temple. 
And part of that prayer, 1 Kings 8, 27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yeah, that was said by the very man who built the house. Stephen is simply stating a fact. You want to condemn me because of what you think I said about the temple. And perhaps you should go back and relearn what the significance of the temple is really all about. I began by talking about the sins of the fathers and then about the sins of the sons of the father. So that's been Stephen's argument up to this point. But now he says, look at your own sins. Look at the false statements you're making about the temple. You're carrying on in the sins of your father. You know, this is something that all of us need to take to heart, especially for those of us who glory in whatever tradition has been handed to us. The question that God will ask of every man and woman is always this one question. Have you been obedient to the word of God or have you been disobedient? See, here's the the, the horrible tragedy that Stephen is relaying. Sometimes the sins of the father are repeated by the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons and great-granddaughters and everybody else. Sometimes we become so comfortable with sin that we no longer realize how far we are from God. Oh, may that never happen to us. Thanks so much, John. Can I ask you this? Why is it so critically important that every generation take very seriously their own personal study of the Bible? Well, I guess for one, I would say you can't have a healthy church in any sense. Well, you can't have an evangelical church that's healthy if you don't have people who are immersed in Scripture. They'll never be what God wants them to be, and they won't contribute well to the church until they think and breathe Scripture. Uh, individually, of course, also. I mean, how are we going to face our own temptation if scripture verses don't come immediately to mind when we're in the throes of temptation? I mean, how are we going to make decisions in wisdom if scripture verses don't come to mind? I mean, you know, I, I can go over and over so many different scenarios where we just become more worldly than we ever thought we are because in all the circumstances in life, we're not always going back to scripture. So I'm going to say, you know, this this well-worn thing, but I'm going to say, read your Bible every single day. Just do it. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back of the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information, 
or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.